0: Check out idealwine.com for more information. That's I D E A L W I N E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. David Lilly takes a moment out of a busy wine buyer's schedule to join us and tell us a little bit about what is one of the most fascinating retailer histories in the business. David brings a phenomenal amount of knowledge to the subject and is someone that I personally find to be a huge inspiration in his work at Chamber Street Wines in Tribeca in Manhattan. Uh, somebody I'm always pleased to take a moment to listen to, and I hope you will too. So we're here today with David Lilly, uh, and David is uh, really an icon in the retail world. No, come on, you are. Come on. Uh, in the retail world, uh, he I founded, hate the word icon. That's a really awful awesome uh, word. Well, Don't use that again. I'm going to get really mad. Scratch that. Uh, is the owner and founder, co-founder and co-owner of Chamber Street Wines on Chamber Street in Tribeca, in Manhattan, and it's a business that he founded in 2001. So you started in two thousand one and it was Tribeca uh, Manhattan, and maybe that was somewhat of a difficult time. Is that possible?
1: Um, yeah, but um, Jamie Wolf, who is my partner co-owner uh, felt very strongly that that was a good location um, He had to convince me and the place was available, and that was really fortunate for us to find a space that had been a store that had failed and Maybe I was a little nervous about, you know, okay, why had the store failed? Sure. <laughs> um, but uh, Jamie was convinced that the neighborhood would support us, um, and we had the beginnings of a national clientele already uh, in place from my years at the previous shop at Garnet. Oh. Okay. Uh, so, I was pretty confident that we had. Um, uh, a concept that would work, that we, that, you know, we knew who our clients would be. Um, so I think it was it was a relatively safe bet for us, despite uh, my misgivings about the neighborhood. Um, not, I mean, no one, of course, could see that 9-11 was coming, but that, uh, and that was difficult. Um, it was difficult, you know, on any number of <laughs> levels. <laughs> um I didn't really think about the business aspect until a week later and Joe Dressner called me up and said, Oh man, you may lose your business. And I said, Joe, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought of that. Uh, <laughs> so we, I mean, yeah, you didn't yeah, think of the, stuff like that, right. that it was so, it was so shocking. shocking. And if you were down there when it happened, it was so emotionally wrenching that it was, you she didn't think of that. So, um,
0: Do you think that the community down there kind of uh, grew stronger in the the years following in terms of supporting neighborhood businesses?
1: A little bit, yeah, I think so. I mean, people were aware that uh, we stuck it out, and you know, my son was out there making deliveries soon after, you know, which was probably not a good idea. Um, The uh, you know the the people that live uh, in the traditional areas of Tribeca just to our north. and then the new people that came in, you know, two, three, four years later started to really come in and populate the new buildings to the west of us. Um, I don't think they really had that much of an idea about it, but um, they've accepted us as the neighborhood store. Whether they realize what we're doing or not, they're happy with the wines, and so they support us. But uh, yeah, I think there was there was some sense, at least in the, the people that had been in Tribeca for many years, that that... We had arrived, we stuck it out, and and uh, so they were faithful to us, for sure.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about a little bit about the wine side and what people may not realize you're doing or may realize you're doing and follow it closely. You know, I'd love to hear more about uh, the conversation that started with you and the Loire Valley and Beaujolais and finding small growers. Market, but maybe not so long ago, we almost unknown in America. Um, how did you end up... Kind of searching through the loire and finding producers like Claude rochema um
1: well it, it goes way back to uh basically uh going to france with my wife i you know i i mean i, I loved wine i was a musician i couldn't afford anything that was more than 2.99 and you know, i used to shop at astor and buy cheap portuguese wine and cheap bordeaux and and it was i was fascinated by it but i didn't think of it as a career um and
0: you were in a jazz band at that time. Yeah.
1: Um, my wife had lived in France for three or four years and, uh, and was not any sort of a wine aficionado, but but knew people in the Loire Valley and liked the wine. So when first time I went to France with my wife in 78, uh, we started drinking Chinol and Bourgois that we bought in Paris at the markets, and I, you know, I didn't know any better. I thought it was terrific and sure. it was cheap. And <laughs> yeah, the Loire is traditionally a big supplier to Paris Bistros, yeah, right? sure. Um and uh you know we um what was the first year uh I guess it was 81 we decided to uh visit the Loire Valley and you know more seriously and we we spent some time uh in Vouvray and luckily enough happened to be staying up the road from Francois Pinot or from his parents friends. Francois was in tour at the time as a working as a psychologist Sure so he makes a little Vouvray <laughs> Yes so we met his parents in nineteen eighty one, uh and we visited some people in Saint Nicolas de and some people uh uh we started drinking in Skede in restaurants. Uh so, you know, I just thought, hey, these are delicious. I didn't really think about doing anything with it. I just thought it was a lot of fun. I thought the people were really super nice and the region was beautiful. Um so it wasn't until uh, you know the music business uh, failed to support my three kids that uh, you know I needed to I needed a job. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so I got a job at Garnet in the fall of '86. I guess it was.
0: Um, so this is the upper east side on lexington uh wine shop yeah which at at
1: that time um you know it wasn't long after pricing had been deregulated it was a very sort of wild
0: and crazy retail world back then got it uh what are some of the things that uh we would have seen back then that would be kind of unthinkable now in terms of how things happen on a day-to-day basis um well, there was a lot of competition
1: on the discount end. I mean, that's what Garnet was doing, and they were—they were—I uh, don't know if despised is the right word, but uh, you know, the the old guard uh, of the wine business, uh, you know, the sherry Laymans and of of the world were were shocked. I mean, they'd had this sort of elitist uh, small world for for years, which had been working fine, and and the profits were very good, and all of a sudden there were new shops. Opening up that were discounting fine wines. That was really, I mean, I may have the dates a little wrong, but I think that really started happening first in the early 80s. Got it. So when I joined Garnet, they were discounting Bordeaux heavily. Um, so it was more of a volume
0: model. It like, was, a, yeah, that was definitely a volume model. Um, you didn't want to sit on the stock too long. You wanted to no. send it out at a lower price. And <laughs> yeah. the savings were a factor of how long you didn't have to sit on the stock. Like, in other words, other people yeah. might have charged more because they were sitting on the the, the Everything, for Everything, you
1: turned over vast quantities of stuff very quickly. And this was sort of a new model, I think, in the wine business in New York Um And, you know, it was all tied in with the arrival of Robert Parker, the the ability of people that didn't really know much about wine to purchase by numbers, uh, you know, I mean, in Bordeaux. I mean, this is really centered around the Bordeaux trade. Got it. And so, so, you know, that's what I learned that stuff. Uh, You know, I studied the wine advocate. And, you know, when I before i got the job at Garnet, i spent a month on a cruise ship that was my last long music job and i was like memorizing the the parker reviews (laughs) um so i would sound like i knew what i was talking about right which was i spent a lot of time doing
0: that too right
1: so um but uh, in that sense, Parker really uh, helped open up the market to everybody and sure. really, really sort of opened the world up
0: to, to what came later. So you. I remember I mean, you're saying that uh, the influence of, of newsletters and numbers allowed Gruner-Velliner to become the Pinot Grigio of, right. of the Sorry. wine world, allowed yeah. s- small kind yeah. of niche yeah. items to, yeah. to get a broad awareness because people were, you know, kind of less intimidated by wine in a way and willing to give a chance to something that had a high mm-hmm. number attached. Right. And while that was going on at Garnet,
1: they were doing this huge volume. Uh, I was researching, as best I could, uh, the Loire Valley, Beaujolais, pr- parts of France I was interested
0: in. And uh, and this is because of your wife's... Uh, well, th- originally, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. You had met a couple know, people in that region through yeah, her yeah. and... You just kind of, you were into it. I just
1: thought it was fascinating. Yeah. And uh, the people were were, were so interesting. Uh, yeah. So,
0: I, just, I mean, what was the retail uh, outlook for Sheenon in 83? Well, there,
1: there wasn't any, but that, um, it took a little while. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I started at Garnet, there was one Skidet and a Sancerre and you know, that was about it. Um, I think the first time I went to France uh, with we really with the intent of sourcing wine was with Alain Jannin, okay, um, who sure. had been uh, sourcing wines in the southern in the Rhone Valley in, the Rome, in southern yeah. Rome, mostly based on Parker
0: scores. Oh, uh, is that true? Yeah. Well, because I, mean, I mean, I associate him like Bonneau and stuff. So
1: yeah. Well. Yeah, I was with Alan when we, uh, the first meeting with Bonneau, and Alan was going 240 kilometers an hour down the A6. He was, I was terrified. Uh, He had been a rally driver, so he was. Oh, is that true? I didn't know that. that. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. He had been a rally driver. I see him only as this kind of older, dignified gentleman behind the table who doesn't talk much. he's
1: crazy behind the wheel. I didn't realize the, the yeah, the anarchist in 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 Beaujolais, you
0: can imagine uh,
1: going around, up and down the hills and around the curves in Beaujolais, he would, he would sort of brake violently, twist the frame, and and just swing. Like, I, I can't describe how race car drivers do what they do. But, sure. uh, you know, <laughs> it was terrifying. Um, anyway, so Alan became interested in, uh, okay, maybe we can do something in the Loire Valley because I'd been talking it up. And um, we met an agent there that introduced us to some people, and I had some names, and um, it didn't work. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> um we started with Algorefo, we started with Joltaglio, Pierre-Jacques Drouet, people like that. Um, but, you know, we, it, I brought it in for
0: Garnet. And it was kind of like a DI model. You just kind of sent it out a newsletter or you are just yeah. sort of hand-selling? Mm-hmm. Yeah, hand-selling. I mean, the wines were terrific, uh, but... I mean, because uh, this is before the era of the email blast. Right. This, this was like
1: the 88 vintage, which was sort of an earthy vintage in the Little yeah, Valley. It wasn't really easy to sell. The 88 is
0: pretty rough and tough.
1: I went out to the West Coast with Alan, with a French sommelier, to try to sell the wines on the West Coast, and people were, were appalled. Uh-huh. Right. Uh
0: huh. How many times were where's, you called a lunatic? Where's the fruit? What? What right. is this? Uh, <laughs> what? what?
1: You know, was, there was a total lack of comprehension. So phenolic ripeness wasn't yeah, exactly that didn't work out too well. So um, happily, uh, were right. there any pitchforks involved, or did it did things <laughs> 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 just a lot of embarrassment? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, so, but happily after that, well, there was also a guy in the Loire Valley, an American agent that was shipping stuff. So we started buying Bernard Baudry, uh,
0: who was just starting back then, really. Wow. Um, and at this I point, forget- you know, I mean, anybody would say he's one of the top yeah. producers, maybe in the whole mm-hmm. Loire, certainly yeah. in Chino. Um, but then, fortunately, you know, the whole, the whole, for me, the whole thing
1: turned on meeting Joe Dresner. Um, okay. Because. Um, Joe was, had started to work in Burgundy. He and Denise had gotten allocations from people like Paul Pernot and you know, sure. other growers in Burgundy. George um, Lemier. And we're shopping them um, in New York and J.R. Batapaglia, who was my my uh, friend and uh, he was the owner's son at Garnet who was buying Burgundy, started to buy from from uh, the dressers. Um And... Joe had already started working. I think he had just started with Jean-Paul Brun. and Jean-Paul had had said, "Oh, you should uh, taste with uh, Marco Olivier because they had shared a stand uh, at a show. I forget where." And so Joe brought samples of Marco
0: Olivier, and um, which is, uh, you know, at this point, a well-known Muscadet producer, but at the time, right. Probably no one knew. Um, and we had we had just started to work with
1: uh, Demain Louvetry. Okay. Who sure. was coming through uh, Jean Marie Deschamps back then? Um, so I had had an idea that there was better Muscadet out there. Yeah, well, those <laughs> are was, some of them, right yeah, there. Yeah. Those are some of the sure. top, you know. Uh, and uh, Joe brought a bottle of uh, of Peppier, and and uh, I said, "Yeah, I'll take fifty cases, that,
0: you know, Yeah, he's just like, i in." <laughs> so, I mean, what for you? I mean, you, you made this kind of have assumed this is a given but what for you would be the difference between a good muscadet and a a so-so muscadet mean, what are some of the differences in how it's produced um what kind of volume we're talking about and the taste profile what what would be different
1: well when i was first tasting them back then i really had no idea i just knew that it tasted good Yeah, i I knew this was this was a good glass of wine i mean i didn't really know why sure um looking back on it it's pretty obvious why i mean mark was was uh um fermenting with wild yeast, which very few people were doing he was hand harvesting which uh, was non-existent in muscadet at the time everyone was using machine harvest everyone um so and you know he had old vines muscle selection vines uh you know i i mean i didn't know that any of that stuff at the time sure. I just i just thought the wine was
0: terrific so did mark know I mean he knew
1: um yes he he knew what he was doing he didn't I mean the way he explains it um, the choice to work without added yeasts was just well I saw that uh, I didn't need them yeah and I thought the wine was better without right. so it wasn't he wasn't uh, in touch with a bunch of wine geeks that said uh, you should work wild geese. He just right. sort of came to that conclusion himself.
0: And it wasn't a cabal of of wine writers no. <laughs> on the East Coast telling well, people he they was, had to use wild geese.
1: At some point, he became friends with uh, Andre Michel Bregeon, who, okay who. Uh, Throughout the dark period in the, in the muscadet was hand harvesting, um, not adding sulfur at the crush,
0: um, you know, vinifying naturally, and and so, so how there long were, would there you were people doing say this, like that? Say the dark period lasted. Like how long was the kind of commercial cheap model of muscadet dominant? Are we talking about a few decades there. I mean, would you say? Um,
1: I think starting in the sixties. I mean, 60s? you know, the whole. The whole uh, conversion to total chimique in, uh, in France happened more in the 60s into the 70s. I mean, Nisquadet was sort of a backwater. They didn't really go totally mechanical. Maybe it was after other people did. But, mm-hmm. I mean, it was happening everywhere, not just in uh, in the Nuskede, But Sure. Uh,
0: but it seems like the you know maybe because it's a back wider we we still see it coming out of that as opposed to it's fully you know we yeah. don't you can't just go to the market pick any muscadet any time and feel like you're going to get a, a artisanal product it seems like if you know certain you know you have to follow certain growers a lot of whom you've been associated with bringing in or writing about or or selling at the retail level but you know if you're not on that kind of short list, then things drop off quality-wise mm. pretty quickly. It
1: seems. But since the Loire Valley was not a commercially important region, and there was, uh, you know, still a huge number of small family estates, they were not so prone to take up the the abuses of Bordeaux or or Beaujolais
0: or other regions that sure. were doing volume and uh, maybe didn't have the money to like buy new harvesters right. sure. and that kind of thing. So you started bringing in some, some things from the, the Loire, and Joe was bringing in some things from bougelet You mentioned Brune. Um, what was kind of the next progression after that? What happened? Um, well, we
1: started um, buying quite a bit of wine from Joe that, uh, um, you know, the earliest states, uh, yeah, included Jean-Paul Brown for sure. Um, um, Joe... Thought it would be a good idea to to travel together and see what we could come up with. And um, I got, you know, used some vacation time at Garnett. Sure. Um, And, uh, you know, we had a lot of names. I had, you know, I had a lot of people that I wanted to see. And Joe had the interest. And, uh, you know, it was sort of crazy on his part because there was really no indication this was going to work financially except that, we had a market for it at Garnett, but beyond that, you know, the, obviously he would need more than that to sell the wine. so Joe was taking a, an enormous gamble in spending the time and, and effort into sourcing wines like that. So,
0: And so um, in the early days, you guys drive up, and what are you looking for when you sit down with a, a grower? I mean, there's a lot of people who mm-hmm. make wine in France, um, you know. Well, you s- we,
1: we had a pretty good list that, you know, uh we had gone through and, and from growers identified. you liked who gave yeah, you know, other names From growers we course. knew from just cross cross-referencing the French press for years, uh, from uh yeah you know, from talking to other people in the region. We we had a a good idea of who we wanted to see um in the first trip or two uh but it quickly opened up a whole world to us that that uh, I didn't know existed, and I think you know it was just uh, it was just a time when th- there was uh, changes were starting to happen in the vineyards, and the uh, young people were starting to work more naturally, and that was it was just a, it was uh, it was a lot of
0: fun. And it, so, when you say work more naturally, uh, w- what does that mean, and and how might one discern a difference in terms mm-hmm. of the finished taste?
1: Well, I think when when Joe and I were, I mean, I mean, this all will seem sort of naive to anyone that had been in the business before. And certainly they were, you know, great importers working very knowledgeably with good producers for years. I mean, for sure. Joe and I were both uh, quite naive mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, so for us, it was... it was. Uh, I consider
0: my naivete part of my charm. It, yeah, it's, I don't know yeah, yeah of course.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, in, it, it it took a while before we started asking things like, okay, wild yeasts. Uh, I remember tasting at the Salon Vendevoir every uh, chevrony producer. And uh-huh. Joe and I tasted independently. And then at the end of the afternoon, we compared notes. And, well, we liked Francois Cazin. He he turns out he harvests by hand and he vinifies with, with wild yeasts. And, you know, we be, began to get the idea that, these were wines we liked we didn't we didn't go there with a with uh manifesto know, a, a manifesto of this is the way we want people to work we we tasted with a lot of growers and realized that the people that were making the wines we liked were working that way so that that became the key to us to asking those questions and I remember someone in the wine business uh, getting mad at me for oh you you, you know you it's wrong to ask those kind of questions up up front, you know, when you're yeah. When I you're remember that kind of came up a couple of years ago. And uh, I said, well, you know, I mean, we like to know the people. We like to we like to
0: feel that they're they're people that we want to work with. We like yeah. to know how they work. Yeah, uh, it's all a part of it. I mean, well, nobody gives Ferrari a hard time for making handcrafted cars, right? No one's like, I oh, you're know. not using an assembly line, you know? You know, it's thought of as a good thing. I think. But the idea that if you taste a wine and you can sell it, then you shouldn't worry about how it's made. Uh uh-huh. Which was, know, let's be honest, pretty common in the 90s. It was like kind of a sure. go-go thing. Like, hey, it's it's moving. You know? But in in the aromatics of a wine, you can usually tell
1: whether it's, at least in the Loire Valley, at, at that point in my experience, okay, is this yeasted or not? And if so it you was, can tell. If it was yeasted, the aromas were sort of cloying and simple. and.
0: And it was a simple, I mean, I mean, obviously yeasts have changed kind of like filters have changed, they've gotten more complex in terms of the ability to culture yeast, but you think and you feel that you can see the difference. I'm I'm asking because I think other people would be asking, so I'm asking. Sure,
1: I, I can't claim to uh, in terms of a taste and smell to, to say I could tell you that with every wine. But, sure, uh, is it or is it not? but, yeah. uh, but you think I don't you consider feel myself like to be a, a particularly talented wine taster, but I think uh-huh. that uh, it's fairly obvious, and the distance is the difference is is quite large.
0: Well, in, in the past, I've found that I quite enjoy the wines you recommend, so I, I feel like you. You're certainly, and I've actually seen you be quite a patient taster, so I think you're you're not giving yourself enough credit. But,
1: but at the same time, so we began to realize that the the wines we liked were coming from organically tended vineyards. Got it. Or people that were at least in work going moving in that direction. Sure. Um, and you know, the more we read about it, the more important that became to us to find people that were working organic, biodynamic. whether they were certified or not, that 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 they were working with living soils. The whole idea of living soils is sort of, you know, it's a huge part of making a real food product no matter what it is, uh-huh. um, not just wine. I've like, heard Whether some it's people cheese, say, sure. whether it's, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, that whole idea was uh, in any sort of commercial wine region, they regard the soil as sort of this inert uh, substance that you – You know, water is the main importance, and then you can fertilize, and you know, what's
0: the big deal? So it's rain and drainage, but no rain, drainage, sunlight. I mean, it's the
1: sort of California theory of what makes great wine. And and indeed, if you want to make a wine of fruit, that's what that's fine. That's all you need. But if you want to make a wine of terroir, you need uh, you need terroir, and you need to have really, if you want to make great wine, in my opinion, you need living soil. And okay, you can say in Bordeaux they make all kinds of. Great wines, uh, you know, most of the great portos are still made on uh, chemically treated vineyards. Um, and it's true, I think, that after 20 or 30 years, uh, when the wines are totally secondary, uh, okay, the difference is maybe not as important. Perhaps so, that's true. Perhaps so that's true.
0: But when they're mature, when that's, they're fully mature. I don't really accept that argument myself. But Got it. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, it's hard to tell because the wines that are fully mature now are probably not as chemically treated yeah. when they were younger. You know what I mean?
1: Right. So anyway, I mean, so Joe and I started, uh, you know, crisscrossing the Loire, the Loire Valley, Beaujolais, and it was, uh, it, it was, we didn't have any money. We were sharing rooms in in crappy hotels or staying on the growers' floors or whatever. And uh, it was, but it was, it was, it was intensely interesting.
0: And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit. I mean, you you knew him quite well. Obviously, he's uh, recently passed away. Uh, not to belabor the point too much, but I mean, what are some of the things that you really remember about Joe, this person that has, by sort of sheer personality, seemingly reached many people mm-hmm. in the wine business? Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the things that you would have uh, summed up this man? You know, he, he was a little bit of a, a chameleon figure at times. I think people had a hard time understanding exactly um, what he would mean by certain things he said, because it, sometimes it, it would seem abrasive to them. You know for instance uh, but he also was incredibly incredibly funny and, and quite tender in certain moments too what are some of the the memories that really stood out for you of uh because you were probably one of his closest friends and business uh, partners well he was
1: uh he was a guy that was great great fun to be with I mean he was he was uh intensely intelligent and could talk knowledgeably about all kinds of things, not just wine. Maybe we wouldn't just talk about wine, you know. Um, uh, I guess for me, yeah, it was just very stimulating to uh, to work with him, to be to 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 travel with him. Uh, he was, as you say, in, intensely funny. You couldn't take seriously most of what he what he said because it was meant as humor, and it was remarkably humorous. Um, and even in those days when i mean he always being married to a french woman and and spending a lot of time in france his french grammatically was fairly good but his accent remained awful uh, throughout his life <laughs> um but he was able to uh communicate very quickly with growers and recognize who um he wanted to work with and who not just that he wanted to work with them, but the, which of the growers were were doing what they were doing because they had to, just because it was what they loved doing, and because it was, and this was what what turned him on. You know, this is what was important to him was to find people that were working in that sense. Um, he was very short with growers who had commercial wine that was, you know, I mean, we would taste with people at the cello, and Joe was. Uh, very good at instantly leaving a tasting that was obviously headed the wrong direction where I was always sort of more polite and would waste (laughs) time tasting through someone's line of stuff that was obviously not what we were looking for Um, but uh, I I think it was uh, the main thing that 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 I remember about Joe was this this rapport with, with the growers that was so deep and, and could could develop so quickly. And uh case in point would be uh Cloroche Blanche when we were and finding Cloroche was, was really uh came out of the Salon Vendor, which was a, a great resource for us, uh, in the early years anyway. Um, I had the idea that we could uh Find a good Touraine Sauvignon, and that the price points would be you know. I was looking at it as a, as a retailer, you know, sure, what, you what wanted I sell?
0: A varietal and, Sauvignon You know, bomb.
1: Joe didn't always look at things like that. He rarely looked at things like that. You know, if the grower had no wine to sell, and it was all the better. You know, if it was <laughs> some unsellable, uh, un- totally uncommercial wine, that was what he was happiest with. So I think having me along was sort of it was good for him because <laughs> balance. <laughs> okay, let's find something I can sell. Right. Um, but, uh, someone told Joe, oh, you should go taste with, uh, Catherine and Didier. So when, when we, you no, know, I remember just sort of walking up to their stand and, and seeing them, wow, okay, these are, these are interesting looking people. Yeah. This looks, this looks great. And the wines were sensational. So, and it was actually fairly shortly after they had started conversion to, uh, to BO and then they were still finding their way, but the wine was terrific and, uh, meeting them and becoming instantly good friends with them was uh again sort of opened up this world to us of uh, people working that way in the lower valley which was starting at that time uh,
0: you know uh, dda is really famous within the certain people who know his story well in terms of um using fennel uh, to fight cryptogrammic uh, disease maybe you could just kind of talk a little bit about that and what he did and he, he's, a, um, again, an amazingly intelligent
1: guy that's done all all sorts of hands-on research about what works in the vineyard, what doesn't. Uh, um, and it's amazing. You, you know, you come in, you you visit people like this in France and, and guys like Didier mm-hmm. Barrier doing this amazing research totally without support of any kind. Sure, it's not like he works for a university. Yeah, I mean, what what chemical company is going to support research that puts them out of business? I mean, sure. there's no, yeah, and or you would think... Within France, there would be more of a concerted effort to support that sort of research that enables people to farm organically. Sure. No one's really found uh, a a dependable organic way to combat rot and mildew. So they're forced to use copper sulfate, which uh, is bad for the earthworms. (laughs) Right.
0: And that's, Uh, you know, that's maybe some of the reason why we see uh, organic and biodynamic wines often in areas where it's a little drier.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's an argument that growers use against organic farming. Well, I don't want to go that way because rock. I don't want to have to use copper sulfate. I mean, right. the, I mean, right. so right. That maybe that's sort right. of an excuse. But anyway, so um, yeah, DGA, it's just it's years and years of trial and error. What what kind of plants work to attract the insects that that are beneficial in the vineyard? What what kind of flowers? What kind of uh, what kind of plants work between the rows, what kind of plants have have deep root systems that will uh, compete with and aerate the soil, compete with the vine and aerate the soil. I mean, it's it's fascinating stuff and um, it's, uh, I mean, Didier has been in the forefront of doing that kind of work along with, uh, particularly in the early days, Francois Chiden, people like that. Um, um, and it's, uh, you know, it's a huge area of, uh, of, of research and interest that's, that's surprisingly, um, uh, not well communicated among growers. I mean, there's the AVN where, where growers will get together and they'll talk about stuff like that. But, you know, people in, in the Beaujolais don't know about Didier Barrier, what he's doing in the Loire Valley. He doesn't know about what's, what someone's doing in
0: Janssen or what's, you know, so it's, it's sort of, uh, one of the things that kevin mckenna told me once who's uh you know joe's mm-hmm. former partner and he runs uh louis dresner selections along with uh joe's widow uh denise is he said that the thing he's probably most proud of is getting the growers to talk to each other about what they're doing yeah. and that he thinks yeah. that that interaction has been better than anything he's done in terms of what we've seen from it like mm-hmm. young growers like Acapinti kind of leaping forward because of the knowledge that they gained talking to other growers on on trips that they all took together when they would show together, but then also when they would all come to America together. Because Joe uh, always had this vision of bringing over all the growers and getting them and having them behind the tables to meet with the buyers, which is rare. I mean, usually you see a few growers and maybe you see a lot of sales representatives and people who work for larger wineries, but you don't necessarily see a small importer bringing over uh, 30 35 people who are all small growers who rarely leave their own vineyards to come meet with the actual buyers in New York or in Seattle or in San Francisco. And that's something that Joe frequently does. And all these growers yeah. know each other because of that, all the growers in a portfolio. Um, is, that, is that Have you seen that change as well, where people kind of get a chance to talk to each other and maybe pick up a piece parcel of knowledge that they wouldn't have known? it's uh it's it's hugely important to them
1: i mean they uh um and there's there's this great rapport among most of the growers that work with louis Dresner that uh share that the, the stories the knowledge they have it's it's really uh uh fun and interesting to be to be part of that um i remember when Marc olivier first came to uh, the u.s he'd never been in an airplane before and uh is that true yeah he was he was super excited about coming to New York. And it remains uh something that he looks forward to really every year. I mean the year that was of the volcano a few years back when, sure. when they couldn't come, he was really upset.
0: Um but yeah, no, they they get together, they talk, they share what they're doing. Um and I remember it was very small scale. I mean, it used to be like, hey, we need a a, a place, somebody's couch that Marc Olivier can crash on, or where can Didier stay you know, right. with a friend? Yeah. I mean, it yeah. wasn't like anybody was getting put up at a, any kind of hotel, let alone a five-star hotel. Well,
1: Mark, right? Mark likes uh, staying with us. Uh, you know, he likes hanging out in the kitchen in the morning, and he's such a deep guy. It's great fun to have him in the house. And he put up, Joe and I, in the early years, that was one way we could afford it. We would stay with Mark and drive back and forth to... <laughs> To uh, to the Pénanté from his place, and he was just so totally generous and supportive of us in the beginning. So yeah, you know, the relationship with Marc Olivier has been very important, and and with Jean-Paul Braun who did the same thing. We always stayed at his place. So yeah, meeting people like that was was super important. And for me, just it's it's the attitude that these growers have toward what they do is so uh, amazingly refreshing and and real. Um, you know, in a world where everything is based on sales and commercial, this and promotions and and uh, to find people that just do what they do because they have to, because they want to, and who are totally outside of that world, it's it's uh, it's remarkable. And and so bringing, helping to bring that to the American consumer, uh, and helping helping these people economically. Okay, it's not uh, you know it's it's you know that's that's not the reason we do it maybe but it certainly is uh,
0: to me i mean it's it's such an interesting world and it's so much fun to be involved with it and that seems to be kind of the vision behind the shop in terms of you know we want to help small growers find a market yeah. for what they're doing because we want to be able to support them um what would you say about the shop and what your work is um I think Jamie
1: and I just both went into it as uh, how can we uh, make a living doing what we want to do? You know, what importing wines that we like, working with people that we enjoy
0: working with. And uh, it's worked out. And I think it was... But it's interesting that it, you say make a living because it wasn't like you said, how can we make a killing? You know, it's not like you guys went big scale and you wanted to make scale- sales. And in fact, you know, that idea maybe even a little bit ridiculous to you even, even right saying I, I, th-
1: that. I think we're both uh, we were both aware that this was not a, a way to get rich i mean no one's that's that's totally uh, out, outside of the the, the idea of
0: yeah. of the deal <laughs> <laughs> right, right right right
1: uh and even now it's not um you know with the expenses of operating the store and the staff we have this fabulous staff but we unfortunately have to pay them and uh, but <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> they're still asking uh, me for yeah, that yeah, huh? yeah 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 um So no, it's not uh, no. It's it's sort of it's this niche that's outside of of the commercial uh, wine world, and it's 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 nice. It's a nice niche. Um, But
0: a lot of people look to you as guys who did it, like who say, "Wow, you really are able to carry the wines that you like," and uh, kind of apart from just kind of uh, concerns about selling, selling, Mm -hmm. selling. You know, it's there's an idea you have a connection with these people, and that you really know the wines quite well and these are the wines you sell but at the same time it's it's been successful and i think a lot of young people are getting in the retail trade are like wow you know if they can do it i can do it mm-hmm. let me sell wines that i really like well you you have to run a retail store you still have to be aware of the the realities of the business what you can and can't do i mean so what would you say to that young person about what you can and can't do i mean what are some of the, those realities
1: well it depends on how how big you want to be i mean mm-hmm. i think jamie and i are pretty comfortable with the size of the shop right now with the amount of business we do um uh, but you know we have to be aware that there are people in our community that walk in the store every day that don't really want uh a biodynamic no sulfur Beaujolais. right Um,
0: so so not everybody's coming in saying i want natural wine most of them will will drink
1: it and like it if we give it to them but you know we do stock some wines that uh don't fall into that category um so, however, in this day and age, I think it's possible to run a store on a small scale that is completely focused on, and there are people doing it, and you know which is great. Um, focused on on bio biodynamic uh, natural wines, there's a market for it. It's not going to be a, a big living, but uh, it can be done. Um, so. Uh, uh, I mean there are no, numerous stores in Brooklyn wherever that, that are that are working on that model that are I, I don't know how they're doing economically I hope they're doing well but uh, um, for us you know we're competing uh, nationally uh, but competing is really the wrong word because we're putting stuff out there that most people don't have right or, or they' like the one guy who has only it. a few other shops have it Um and uh it's fun, you know it's fun writing emails and sending them out and getting response from all over the country from people that 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 would like to try these wines, and so we have you know regular customers all over the country uh
0: and that's that's a lot of fun so what would you say that maybe the person come in off the street who isn't necessarily looking for um b o kind of wines and and doesn't know about the natural wine? Uh, conversions that are happening amongst conversations that are happening in France or in Italy. Um, say they were to approach one of these wines, you know, having come from a background of trying wines that are very different, maybe from the new world. What would you say to that person? I'd, I'd say
1: uh, try this. It's a really it's a delicious bottle of wine. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to give them too much information because they glaze over pretty quickly. Um, you know, you want the and customer
0: to try, try it, it so you, you express your enthusiasm. But what if they said, gee, this doesn't smell like anything I've had before. What would you say yeah. then? Like, this seems pretty different. How would you maybe talk about that with that person?
1: Um it doesn't happen that frequently really. Okay. Um
0: and do you think that's because you know retail you're not there when they open it or No, I, I think there there are
1: certain wines that, that we know are going to cause that reaction. Let's okay. say uh, wines that are overtly somewhat oxidative or wines that sure. have um that have a little bit too much of schizo yeasts uh, involved. So the the aromas are, are too funky. And, you know, you have to know your customer. And so um, you don't you don't give the guy who walks in off the street that bottle of wine. Um, maybe you work them up to that. And if 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 they come in and say, yeah, I really like that sort of that interesting, aromatic, uh, you know, that was I've never tasted a wine like that. Then you then you, you kind know, take you, it to the next. Yeah, level. I mean. The Ducru uh, Beaujolais or uh, its not doesn't okay. It's biodynamic. There's no sulfur, but it doesn't uh, have a lot of off aromas. There's there's sure. basically no bread. Pretty in delicious there, to speak wine. Of. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, as as a side uh, as an aside on that part of the wine world. Um, you know it was fashionable in France uh, some years back to uh, to start to start up your winery and work without sulfur and uh, as Pierre Auvernois said uh, in an interview uh, in uh, with Francois Morel you know it's one thing to work without sulfur but then you have to taste the results um, you know you you have to know what you're doing it takes it, it takes the ability to to cool the vats it takes equipment it takes i mean some people do it with a great deal of analysis the guys in the Beaujolais that are working with low sulfur Frequently, they're doing constant analysis to, to make sure of what's going on. Um, of course, there are guys like Ducreux or Pierre Frick who don't analyze anything, who just. <laughs> Is that true? They just oh, yeah. let it it. Yeah. Um, they just taste it. You know, I mean, if it's working without sulfur, they don't add sulfur. Um, Ducru never adds sulfur, but I mean, Frick will add sulfur to whites uh, if he feels that the wine can't support it, but he'll he'll just draw off a glass and leave it for a, a few days or a week or whatever and if the wine uh, holds up he'll say yes you know i can i can bottle this without sulfur um so but so, so there, there was a trend there for a while which still exists to uh and there's a lot of it in the Roussillon and in the loire to make wine without sulfur because that's the way they feel the wine should be made and the results are not always so great um, and i you know i don't agree that the consumer should have an obligation to drink wine like that. I mean, I think that's, uh, I think it's a great direction for people to go in. I think, you know, I, I really have a lot of respect for growers that are trying to work without sulfur. Um, but in terms of bringing the wine to the U.S. and presenting it to the consumer, you have to be a little bit
0: careful. I mean, uh, so. There's a responsibility there. Yeah. Where do you see the trends going in the next few years? I mean, talk a little bit about what's been going on. What do you see happening, you know, at the kind of grassroots level? with these growers or things might change over the next 10 years, what's, what's next? That's a
1: tough question because, uh, I mean, the economics of, uh, small wineries remain, uh, pretty tenuous. I mean, these guys that are working that way are not making money. I mean, they're doing it, as I said, because it's what they do. They're not, uh, um, so, you know, how many young guys starting to work like that are going to be happy with the lifestyle that that uh, is not going to ever put a, a Mercedes in their in their garage? Um, you know, it's 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 to maintain that type of winemaking really. I mean, I I, I don't see it leading to commercial success. I don't see a trend because uh, it's I,
0: heavy labor and yields
1: are lower right um you know there are wine larger wineries that have converted to biodynamie that are making commercial success like growers in sancerre for example i mean i mean you know who they are who are working that way and making commercially successful wine and making a fairly large amount of money usually the wines are not particularly interesting I mean there really seems to be a lot of growers feel like there is this maximum size that an estate can be to really make handmade artisanal wine that that has that taste of the soil that has really has that uh
0: that link to the terroir and if if you were to say to someone besides you know, look at the website that you have and and get a sense. What are some of the names of growers that you would point people to if they really wanted to get that sense of the taste of the terroir? Who are some of the kind of benchmark names that would come to mind for mm-hmm. you uh, that you might want to pass on? Well, there's so many. I mean, at this point, it's, uh, I mean, if you
1: started in Muscadet, I mean, you, you know who they are. Um, and there are happily more now than there were 10 years ago, but, you know, there's Marco Olivier, there's, there's, uh, at Louvre There's, there's Brejean. There's, uh, Papin. There's, um, I mean, and, you know, Muscadet is, is sort of, it's, it's a favorite region for a lot of terroir lovers because, you know, the grape is mm-hmm. sort of transparent. It's, it's, uh, the melon does not have a lot of, uh, varietal fruit character. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you what you get is is largely uh, a reflection of of your terroir so it's you know you can very easily taste the difference between the granite based wine the the wines based on schist and uh uh and nice and so forth um so um and then uh boy i mean uh People in in Beaujolais that, that make terroir based wines. I mean, there's there's so many of them now. And it, but again, for them, it's sort of a struggle. You know, it's not so easy. They're harassed by the Inao to make Tipique Beaujolais because sure. that's how they feel they're going to compete with the rest of the world.
0: Why don't we talk about what that what that means? I mean, there was uh, Brun had a had a wine they had to declassify because of that. I mean, mm. what what happens when? The, what is expected becomes uh, not the vision of the young right. growers who are trying for more it's, quality.
1: It's a big problem in France because uh, largely the people that make those decisions are young bureaucrats. Not um, necessarily
0: in each region. Wine growers.
1: Well, some of them are some of them are wine growers, but they're 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 relatively young. Uh, they don't have experience with wines before the 1960s that tasted differently. Got it. So their idea of what the appellation could should present to the outside world as typicity is a modern uh, yeasted,
0: chemically farmed uh machine harvested wine. So so mediocrity in a way is kind of enshrined. Right. And then they say, well this doesn't taste mediocre, so you can't call it the same as this. Right.
1: And the you know the the commercial impetus for for groups like that is to compete internationally with
0: uh other areas of the world, which Got is insane. It. I mean sure. it's complete insanity to, to So expect. you're saying the large commercial producers in a region may be competing not with the small growers in our region so much as they're competing with somebody in Australia right. or Chile or Argentina. Right. the
1: the people of the INAO are worried about how how are French wines going to compete in the in the international market. So they want the regions to have this typicity, they want Beaujolais to be uh thermo fermented, they want it to be fleshier, they want it to be more aromatic, you know, which is and so there's a lot of pressure on growers to work that way, and which Americans don't realize perhaps, but it's it's very frustrating. There are growers over there that are so angry, you know, they're ready to quit because they uh, they don't want to put up with the harassment by the by the local authorities. So it's
0: come to that. I mean, there's some people who may stop making wine because of this.
1: I've heard a lot of them say that. I mean, just just out of anger, um, but. Uh, So for a small grower to exist outside of the commercial wine world and to to present wines that are Vins de France, Uh, Maison Brûlée in the Loire Valley, it's not uh, Touraine or Cheverny, it's Vins de France. Uh, Christophe Fouché, the same thing, Vins de France. um uh, uh, nouveau is not a Beaujolais it's a Vin de France um, do, do the growers then
0: usually make less money on that kind well of
1: that's the, in reality they don't because the people they're selling to don't care don't care but but that message has to that be communicated. that message is, is is communicated to them and it does within France it there is difficulty in the marketplace if you're not
0: AOC. Got it, so if you don't have a dedicated clientele already, it can be very difficult yeah. to find the market sure. for something that yeah. doesn't get the appellation What are the other challenges <laughs> you see in the market? I mean, what are some of the things that just make you want to hit your head up against the wall and say like this is silly what, what, if you could change a few things about the relationship between getting you know small growers' wines to well consumers. the three tier
1: system is uh, there, there are good and bad things about it um it's uh, on, on one hand, it enables people like Louis Dresner, let's say, to place their wines in many states in the country and have distribution, which is great.
0: So when you say three-tier, um, you mean the importer, distributor, imported, distributor retailer, retailer or restaurant, yeah. Um, but,
1: you know, the, uh, the margins are important at each level so that by the time the wine gets to the consumer... Um, it can be at a price point which makes it difficult to introduce, let's say, you know, a small production natural wine to the American consumer because so,
0: everybody's taking a cut. So, ten dollars right. becomes twenty-eight dollars by the mm-hmm. time it hits the yeah. shelf. It's you know, it's frustrating, but it
1: is sort of the economic reality of how it's going to work. And so, the question is not uh, okay. So, we're bringing wines directly which enables us to offer them less expensively which is great but on any sort of real scale it's difficult to expect that to work for a lot of people because uh, importers working with these small estates need distribution and so you know the pricing it's it's going to creep up but um i mean i have a lot of respect for what uh, Louis Dresner does in that regard. They promote the wines very well. Um, their distributors generally work well to to educate people in the different regions. Um, so it's 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 a frustration the three tier system, but I don't I don't see it really changing uh, that dramatically. Um, you know, to those of us that are able to work directly to some degree, it's fine. And Joe was Joe Dresner was was sometimes critical of our efforts to do that. And I'd say, Joe, look, this is strengthening the whole segment of of the business. If we can offer more and more of these small estate wines uh, at reasonable prices, we're going to draw more and more people into the market and you're going to sell more wine, which is indeed what's happened. We do more business with Louis Dresner than ever, even though we're doing a lot of, of importing on our own through uh, you know a company here in New York. So,
0: How do you feel like the way that the, technological interface um, has changed has allowed you to do what you want to do better
1: It's it's been hugely important uh, when we um, opened the store we had a website built by Robert Callahan who was working had been working for me at Garnett who was very ins- instrumental in brilliant the, guy a brilliant guy um, and his i mean the the site that he was working on with a few other people wine therapy was was hugely important in reaching people around the country um so when we first built the site uh, Robert built it for us at chamber street it was it was reaching out to that um that group of consumers around the country. We didn't really see it as a tool in the the sense that it has become uh, in terms of using it as a catalog, as a resource, as as everyday people in the neighborhood ordering online,
0: which, of course, they do. Um, Because, I mean, there's some things that come out and um, there's like a feeding frenzy, you know, where people are like, oh, there's 36 bottles left. you got to get in there now. I mean, Beaudry Rose, I think, would be a good example. You just offered it (laughs) and it was like the clarion call went out, you know. And then there's there's some things that are so limited at this point that it's like they can't even go out on an email right. offer because you'd have yeah, to send too many people rejection notices. That's
1: the problem. We try to avoid that, um, you know, putting things on the web that where the quantity is so small. I mean, that's that's an irritation, I mean, frankly, right. for people that, that see it and want you know, it and then it's gone. So
0: You don't want to return 100 phone calls with
1: apologies. Right. And- um, But when we rebuilt the website maybe five, six years ago, our business increased dramatically because we were reaching so many more
0: people with it. Um, And it is, as you said, a national audience. And and Do you think you would have been able to do what you do today without those kind of tools?
1: No. I mean, well, I I shouldn't say that. Yes, we would, but it would have been limited to the New York area. I mean, it would have remained a much smaller business, but yes, we could have done it without the Internet. Um, It would have been dependent upon... Uh, effective advertising within New York. I mean, Garnett, for example, was spending huge amounts of money advertising in the New York Times every month, and Chamber Street does not spend a dime on print advertising. Um, you know, we we don't we don't Do advertise whatsoever. Online, we have done in the past. Like. Yeah, we we supported the Asimov column for sure. a while online right. until they turned it into the Living section, and you couldn't you know you couldn't pinpoint the wine audience. Right. Um, Now people approach us, you know, the big national search engines and advertising things approach us about working with them. And we say, no, 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 we're a niche. We have our niche. We don't, we don't need or want to have to deal with your more national uh, distribution. Um, But yeah, down the line, will our idea of that survive? It's hard to tell. I, I think so because of the nature of what we're selling. I mean, it, it, it comes down to the wines we're selling, the, the winemakers we're representing. They don't fit into larger, uh, whether it's Amazon or, or, or whatever, they don't fit into that. Um, maybe eventually there's a way that they will, uh, which might be good for everyone. I, I don't know. Uh, I think
0: it's a ways down the road yet. Yeah. Um, so, because you're dealing with small quantities, it's like the large right. scale, yeah. people don't even have an interest in picking up, you know, 20 cases to sell because that to them is more of an annoyance than it is. So, I mean, for you, you may not feel the pressure of, you know, like a online discounting model uh, because it's just not affecting how you do business at all, really. I mean, it's not the same wines. Is that... Fair to say. Right.
1: Yeah. No. I think that's true. I mean, there are there are certain parts of the wine business that would be workable in that in that way, um, but but not ours. I mean, um, you know, the, those people want you to give up a margin or X dollars per whatever, or, and you know, we we don't have room for that either. But it's you know, like you say, it's it's because what we're selling is so limited in availability that we we can't really work in that in that larger. Uh, uh, commercial model
0: and there's not really a fear that like some large uh person or you know re- online entity would go to one of those small growers and say well if you give us a price cut on your wine then we'll right. sell a bunch of it because the grower yeah. themselves can't afford to give right. such a price cut so yeah. it's not even a possibility really no. If a lot of if ways. a
1: guy has two or
0: three or four hectare uh, he can't <laughs> it's like He's not going to give He's a five-euro discount, discount no. just to sell, yeah. you know, an extra 10 yeah. cases because that's what the quantity is involved. Yeah. yeah, David, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. I really appreciate it. I always learn something when I talk to you, and I uh, I really have a lot of respect and admiration for what you're doing at the shop.
1: Thank you, Larry. It's a pleasure to, to be here, and uh, I hope uh, this works out. And, and uh, I hope that, that people... Uh, Will continue to support these kind of small estates, and, and I, I would like to be very encouraging for other people to, to to get into the
0: business, start businesses that that focus on these kind of lines. All drink to that is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs.